0: Welcome to Rocking Our Prize. I'm Dr. Alice Evans, today with Professor Daron Asimoglu discussing his new book, The Narrow Corridor*, which demonstrates that to secure liberty and prosperity, we need a strong state and a strong society. Daron, welcome.
1: Alice, thank you. It's great to... Talking to you.
0: <laughs> okay, so I'd like to structure the podcast as follows. First, we provide an overview of the argument, and then I'd like to really drill down and think about the causes and consequences of labour coercion, what causes strong societies, innovation in China, the shift to include social norms, uh, parallels between Napoleon and the Iraq War, and then how me thinking as a feminist, that even if we shackle the Leviathan, we may still be trapped in the cage of norms. But first, let's start with the overview of this great argument. So as I understand it, crudely summarizing, the key argument is that for liberty and prosperity to emerge and flourish, we need a strong state and a strong society. Why is that?
1: Yeah, so that's actually, I mean, I can put this at an almost trite level. I mean, you cannot have what we presume as liberty without you know, laws you know laws are the best guarantor of people having opportunities people being able to protect themselves against intimidation against violence and of course you cannot expect any of these things to be offered to people if the state rules the world without any contestation of power any monitoring by others so at that level it's obvious but it's actually hopefully it's a little deeper than that because you know, a lot of the things that we are engaged in in the modern world is embedded in a very complex set of social economic transactions and relations. And really the ability of states to actually structure those transactions, to support them, to create any something that provides opportunities to people, protects them against the uh, uh, unfair or bullying behavior of socially, economically, politically powerful actors, those are really critical for what we take as granted as as, as liberty. So in some sense, uh, you know, the this perspective is really an argument against the sort of libertarian notion that liberty comes away from the states. It comes together with the states, right. but the complex part of it is that, of course, it's not in the interest or in the DNA of the states to protect liberty. So you really need to prod them, you need to push them to do so, and that's where the strong societies come in.
0: Right, This this constant interaction, the Red Queen, it's the struggle, the struggle, conflict and cooperation, the coevolution. Uh, evolution Absolutely,
1: I think those are some of the critical aspects. And of course, conceptually, philosophically, mm. that means that we first have to abandon this notion that somehow we can... Uh, secure democracy or secure liberty uh, in the hands of like well-designed constitutions. Really right. the, the hurly-burly of politics is really critical. So we have to think about that and how it influences states. And the Red Queen is just one way of conceptualizing mm. that, which is that, you know, once you sort of make this leap to thinking about, yes, we need both the strong states and the strong societies, you know, how do they come about? And, and in equal part both the competition and the cooperation between state and society is critical. So cooperation first, I think, is perhaps a little more obvious, Mm. but still I think it's something we need to probe a Mm. little bit deeper. You know, what we, again, perhaps take take for granted is that there's an incredible amount of trust in institutions in the modern societies in which we live in. So, you know, most people don't trust their business partners because, you know, they think, oh, He's never going to cheat me. They trust that the system is going to correct it if if he cooks the books right. or steals money from you. So that trust in institutions comes from this cooperation between yes. state and society. We think that, that enormous powers in the hands of the security forces, in the hands of the politicians and the state, that's not there to intimidate us but to actually work with us. But how do you get that cooperation uh, that's also very critical for the state to actually be able to do its 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 business you know the what you know james scott calls legibility that's critical but legibility legibility doesn't come just from the repression which is what james scott uh, emphasizes actually whenever it just comes from uh, repression or oppression it's not very good it's it's really much closer to illegibility it comes when society allows the state to come and you know monitor and understand yes. what it's doing but none of that is going to be possible, in my opinion, in, in James and my opinion and our understanding of history, unless there is a sense in that society can monitor the state as well. And that's where the competitive element. Yes. So cooperation comes from our belief that we can actually reign in the state. If, if the state mis, misuses it, we can kick out the politicians, we can go in the streets, we can use our civil society organizations or the media. I think those are critical elements of it. And when you go back in history, unfortunately, that also meant armed struggle. Yes. So that, you know, violence was a very important arena in which who's going to control the violence. And if the violence was completely in the, under the control of the elites, that didn't sort of uh, cultivate that and support that sort of cooperation.
0: Okay, so if society is not strong enough, then the state can be despotic. And uh, in your book, The Narrow Corridor, China is a sort of exemplary despotic Levathan. I wonder, why Why do you think the, the despotic Levathan has persisted in China? So I think
1: that's very, very interesting and important thing to probe. And when you look at Chinese history, mm. I think there are a couple of really interesting aspects that would be useful to put on the table mm. for a detailed discussion. First of all, most of Chinese history is not characterized by, you know, very violent repression. It's not that China is despotic if you uh, interpret despotism to mean, uh, you know, forceful suppression.
0: Vertex, right.
1: right. So China is despotic in the sense that we define despotic, which is that state institutions and elites don't get input, don't get systematic input from the people. And that is really about the balance of power between state and society. So society is badly organized. It's meek, it's impaired, its ability to have its voice heard are cut or constricted. And that is not something about Chinese culture, we believe, although it does very strongly interact with norms. You know, that's why we start the book, uh, the, or the China, not the book, sorry, mm. the, the, the chi- China discussion in the book mm. from the Ottoman spring period, where, at least from our understanding and the historians' knowledge of, uh, uh, of what was the case 2,800 years ago, that, uh, you know, there was a lot of participation, much more city-state-like structures, but political changes, especially war, as it does in many Cases really changed those dynamics, and starting from the warring state period and the Qin dynasty, the relationship between state and society changed, and both the legalist philosophy, which is about you know using laws to suppress society, and the Confucian philosophy, which is a much more complex and much more flexible philosophy, came tools for elites to be able to conduct the affairs of state shielded from the influence of society. And even though there were big uh, uh, rebellions and changes in dynasty, that tradition, both in the structure of the state, such as for example, the the bureaucracy, in the way that the ruler structured uh, the economy, all of these things to some degree persisted and then they became intensified during the communist era. And the intensification is really super interesting in my opinion because, you know, by the end of the 19th century, the Qing dynasty was a despotic state, according to our definition, but it was a weak state, too. Mm. It wasn't able to provide public services. It wasn't able to collect taxes. It wasn't able to regulate economic activity. And and the, the weakness has its roots that the state really did not penetrate society. And the Communist Party under Mao, with this sort of rural ideology and, and the willingness to invest in having the communist party everywhere really intensified the ability of the state to control society and that's what we sort of inherit from the you know from the collapse of the of, of mao's rule so we have that in, uh, that we have that sort of legacy of Despotic state institutions very well. Amplified
0: weak. through Amplified. the straddles and the rural landlords. Okay. Exactly. But can I just go back a little bit historically? Because one thing I found perplexing in reading the Europe chapter and the China chapter huh? is that you note that in both China and in Europe, there were revolts over high taxes. Yes. But only in Europe did that result in greater representation. And I wonder why you think that was.
1: Yeah. So this is what, you know, I think there are two, two different kinds of revolts that mm. we need to Distinguish. I think this is, of course, caricaturistic, and Chinese scholars will disagree with so some aspects of it. But when you look at most of the revolts in China, they happen as a result of very, very, very long time grievances that people are unable to express. And then they explode. And when they explode, it completely leads to the collapse of dynasties or, you know, decades yes. of. Carnage and, and problems because there isn't a channel for that discontent to be uh, to, 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 to flow into some sort of policy action and whereas in Europe, I think the key is that by the time all of these revolts become you know commonplace uh, because of taxes, because of land policies, etc, there's already the inheritance of what we put a lot of emphasis. Sort of the assembly politics that started in the Middle Ages, and there is sort of these uh, witans in, in, so in the England. Sort of initial endowments the initial of social Initial endowments, capital. so social capital and institutions, really. Yes. I mean, it's the norms and institutions yes. together. Mm. If you look at the Franks and the Merovingians' uh, assembly structure, that's both an institution and a norm. It's an institution because they actually have these uh, bodies that are meeting once a year, but also it's a norm. The expectation is that chiefs get their legitimacy and then later kings get their legitimacy from being anointed by these uh, by these assemblies. So that becomes a norm that you know even though you know Clovis for example is crowning himself uh, you know in the garb of a Roman emperor and and investing a lot of power military power in his hands he still has to play by those norms. Same thing for Charlemagne same thing for their descendants. So, So that's the sort of the nexus of institutions and norms that creates a very different understanding of politics and so therefore a lot of the rebellions and a lot of the discontent is directed at changing policy using these channels of influence so that's why for example you know if you look at the 19th century britain the, uh, mm. uh, you know you can say well you know this is not a very democratic society and obviously not you know even after the first reform act of only a small minority of only men but only a small minority of men are voting but if you look at other forms of participation, not to justify the exclusion of so many people no, from no. politics, but there is much more activity. There's yeah. all this petitioning going on, and everybody is, like, writing petitions. Why is that? Because they expect that yes. the, the 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 legitimacy of the... Governments comes from its responsiveness to parliament, and parliament has to listen to all these petitions and all these pressures.
0: So the key point here is the co-evolutionary process. As the state becomes more responsive, as people then people come to expect more, so they mobilise more, and it's that constant iteration of struggle and compromise. Exactly, and when that rebellion
1: happens, happens, it's using those channels of influence. It's not like a bomb exploding to destroy everything.
0: I'm with you. Okay, so I was reflecting back about how countries move into the narrow corridor. And as I see it, maybe there are uh, four sort of aspects that you talk about. Mm -hmm. One is the initial endowments of social capital, the historic legacy of Germanic tribes we've touched on. Two, the positive feedback loop can emerge, which uh, sustains the narrow corridor. Three, with luck, new leaders like in Bogota, you mentioned that. And then you point to I think a really interesting point, a structural shift, and that's the decline of labor coercion. And you illustrate that in Guatemala and South Africa, mm-hmm. that labor coercion obviously inhibits a strong collective uh, civil society. Absolutely. And when that decline, yes. So but so I'm totally with you that mm-hmm. labor coercion is a blockage. But here are my three questions. Mm-hmm. One, many societies are still weak, even in the absence of labor coercion. Mm-hmm. and. If labour coercion is important, then I think we need to explain its global heterogeneity. So, for me, why does the history of slavery and serfdom vary so much in the world? Now, thinking ahead for this podcast, I preempted three possible responses you might say. I had this sort of game of chess, you know, me and Asimov in my head, right? <laughs>
1: You've done well, you know. <laughs>
0: Right, okay, so I thought, one, well, what would Daronne say? One, Darone might say, well, it's because of small differences at critical junctures. You know, I'm thinking Western and Eastern Europe at the time of the Black Death. That's what one thing you might say. Or you might say, well, some regions just got unlucky. And I was thinking of West Africa and the slave trade, which is possible. So, may, so, But is it really luck? Because, for example, taking the example of West Africa... Mm-hmm. There was already a history of labour coercion prior to the slave trade and some people argue that was due to low population density which was in turn a function of geography. And I know you had your famous spat with Jeffrey Sachs you know, disputing the impact of importance of geography but isn't geography maybe one of those deep structural determinants of, of labour coercion and in turn then social capital?
1: I mean I think of course Complex phenomena such yes, as yes. social uh, social co- uh, uh, labor coercion mm. have many roots, and I don't mm. mean to deny any of them. No, but sure. we have to be like which are the really important mm. ones. So, so I think labor coercion is very complex. So let me start with uh, from the first part of your question. My lord,
0: with the question. No, no. no, no, no. <laughs> I, mean, I think I think those
1: are all very very important issues. Because and I think the first part I can sort of slightly be I can be a little more precise. The way that we think about it is that it's not that labor coercion. Yes or no determines whether you're in the corridor or no, but the labor coercion determines the structure of the corridor. So the way that we put it is that in a society where there is endemic, systemic labor coercion, the corridor is very narrow or non-existent because the sort of participation of the large fragment of society in politics is really, really hard, and the... uh, the, the coercive relations are so beneficial for the landed elite in general, yes. you know, the, the, that's the part of the elite that really benefits from it, that, that really they make it very unlikely for them to compromise. So it makes everything much more zero sum. So, so therefore labor coercion's decline creates the preconditions but it doesn't guarantee, right. and yeah, then sure, you still sure, need sure. the leadership. You still need the engineering of, like along, along the lines of Bogota or Lagos, mm-hmm. where people can, at the same time, build state capacity and build the trust in the, in themselves and in the, in the state. Those are still important elements. So, then the question is, you know. Is labor coercion the unique factor that does that? No. I mean, I I tend to think labor coercion is super interesting in the long durée of human history Mm. because it's been so, you know, it's been one of my pet topics because, you know, in labor economics, we start with supply-demand, and that's the only thing that we teach our students. And if we look at history, supply and demands are conspicuous and they're absent. Most economic relations in the labor market did not take the form of that. It was, you know, couched in coercion. So that's why I, I, I think it's very important for economists to sort of put a lot of emphasis on that so but labor coercion is just one of the several uh, structural factors that determine the width of the corridor yeah so I mean if for many social problems you want to have a much more comprehensive holistic understanding of where labor coercion comes from and 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 to be honest I don't know (laughs) but that's, that's never stopped me conjecturing I think You know, geography, I don't see that as being so important. You know why? Because take every crop that you know, and you see it in history produced under coercive conditions and non-coercive conditions. You know, people talk about sugar. Oh, but what about the
0: low population density point?
1: Oh, low population density, that matters, but it matters not as a geographic factor. It matters as a political factor, which means that low population density versus high population density at a specific historical juncture determines the subsequent political development. So, when Europeans invaded you, uh, colonized you, high population density opened new possibilities for Europeans. Today, you know, if there was an area of the world that was, you know, not discovered and suddenly gets discovered and has high population density, we're not going to impose, hopefully not, we're not going to impose the same forced labor institution. So so I think that's not a geographic necessity, it's the historical context that interacted with those existing preconditions that determined it. But I think when we look into the the history of slavery, Mm. I I think there are really lots of interesting things, like Black Death, as we emphasized Mm. in Why Nations Fail. Jim and I emphasized in Why Nations Fail that was really important as other economic historians and historians have, of course, noted before us. You know, also before black theft, slavery had essentially disappeared in Europe. There was a lot of coercion, but not slavery. And the reason, I think, is because, you know, as humans, we can be pretty nasty, but it's very difficult to create that sort of durable sets of institutions where you're living together in a very tight place. But one group is a chattel slave and completely sort of excluded from all opportunities. That's very difficult to maintain. So you need this whole sort of ideological norm-based and institutional-based environment around it. And that's why, you know, uh, the U.S. South or parts of Brazil created or or the Caribbean created because of racism. But, you know, if you take that away, you know, there are a lot of tensions for that sort of system to persist. And then it merges into other slightly less coercive forms of uh, 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 labor relations, again couched in different types of norms, so that serfdom wasn't as bad as slavery, it wasn't very nice at all, but it was sort of a little bit more flexible, because the sort of the slavery that existed in the Middle Ages became harder and harder to maintain. So I think that's just to say that in the future we really need to sort of study slavery, both from an economic and from a social point oh, of view.
0: Oh yes, absolutely, absolutely. And, that, and and that, I think, is the brilliant point about the this increased attention to norms, which we'll come to in a little bit, and I'm excited about that. Okay, so no, but first I have a question. Where do strong societies come from? Because when I read your book, societies... Countries get into the narrow corridor by this positive feedback loop, Mm -hmm. societal capacity, state capacity. We have a strong literature on state formation. So I won't (coughs) ask you about where strong states come from. But where do strong societies come from? Because on the one hand, we can have societies divided by ethnic, tribal, (laughs) caste lines. And then the other side, we have societies that are cooperative, that are united, Mm -hmm. that solve collective action problems. And I'm wondering... How how you get?
1: So I mean, in some sense, you can say, mm. you know, uh, you know, if if isn't I, that I the mean, missing element uh, in your book, is, though? It is. But if I mean, I, uh, if if you say, you know, your book poses more questions than it answers, I'll take that as a compliment. <laughs> so so essentially, what we wanted to argue is that these elements of well-organized societies with different sorts of norms are really important for thinking about the evolution of economic, political institutions and liberty. And I think we see in history, more recent history, how starting from some initial conditions how these norms change. So I think perhaps we'll talk a little bit about that, you know, for example in the context of the cage of norms and the interplay between states and the cage of norms. But where do the original norms come from? I think that's a fascinating question. And it's... it's I, I don't know. Like, for instance, we say... The Franks had these assembly politics. Yeah. They have these institutions uh, and norms that said... You know, the chiefs are not our boss. We select the chiefs and we can dispossess them. You know, Mongolians, they have many familiar, uh, or the the Turkic tribes, they have many familiar things uh, in terms of their organization. They also have their own sort of weak assemblies and they have their gatherings. but they don't have the same norms uh, that the chiefs are more powerful. So where does that difference come from? It might have some historical roots, it might have some uh, other accidental roots, I don't know, I think it would be fantastic to know. Some of those I'm comfortable to take that as given, but others I'm really not comfortable as taking that as given. Like, for example, you know, does it matter that in Argentina society is badly organized? Yes, it does, and I think we need to understand that. And part of it is actually endogenous. Like, for example, the Peronist Party plays a huge role. So, Peronist Party channeled a lot of the discontent but in such a distorted way that I think in Argentina it weakens society, that then strengthens society. Whereas if you take a uh, situation like Chile, in many ways, starts out with many disadvantages relative to Argentina. The fact that you don't have the Peronist Party, I think, helps the Chilean civil society. So I think those are the sort of conversations. Again, I'm not an expert on any of this, but I think those are the sort of conversations, theories, and approaches we can have.
0: Because again, I think you, you say what it starts with, and for me it's similar to the point about labour coercion, because when I read your point, I say, you know, whether we're talking about the TIV in Nigeria or whether we're talking about Tudor England, mm-hmm. my question is just, but what explains the global heterogeneity in the initial endowments of social capital? I think mm-hmm. that's the, the question for the, your yeah. the next book with Jim, right? Yeah, yeah,
1: to some degree it is, and to some degree, you know, uh, <clears throat> this is also what you know, uh, Jared Diamond uh, yes. sort of attempted, I mean, I don't agree with his his answer, but but there is, there is some part of his answer that's right, that a, a, a number of coincidences just enabled yeah. Europeans to monopolize global power much more than any other corner of the world, and then that really had a transformative effect on what's happened over the last 500 years. But of course, then you want to go deeper and say, was that because of the uh, sort of northwest ax- the north-south axis versus the uh, east-west axis, whether because of the domesticable species?" I don't think so. I think it's much more about other aspects of norms, institutional innovations, organizations but but again for for some discussions that about you want to have for the last four hundred years, I think that's secondary. you know the the relevant thing is that Europeans colonized, shaped, at some degree exploited the rest of the world, at some degree, they also provided technological and institutional blueprints, and all of these are sort of the the, the elements we can work with in order to understand what happened in Latin America, for example.
0: Yes, I had one idea, and I'd be mm-hmm. curious about your take. Thinking about what explains the initial co- uh, conditions. Mm-hmm. So what do you what do you make of the argument that maybe Christianity helped abolish cousin marriage and that led to the format you know, as argued by Schultz and other people. Yeah, and that sort so, of strengthens it was brought in it. Woody
1: Schultz, I mean I think that's the classic work by Jack Goody, mm. for example. You know, I I think the way that James and I view it is that Christian church was part of the state ensemble that had already evolved before the Franks came to be so dominant. Mm. But it really got shaped in interaction with the uh, sort of the the bottom-up politics of yes. Germanic tribes and how they invaded... But
0: these Germanic tribes, you really like these Germanic tribes, but, I, but I, I was thinking, if I look at the world, where do we see the most solidaristic civic places? Is it really Germany or is it Scandinavia? And Germanic tribes didn't have so much influence in well, Scandinavia. they Scandin- did, they did. I mean, Scandinavia, so they, do you think that's true to Germanic
1: much tribes? they're yeah, they very much, you know, that's why, you know, the Goths were particularly, that's why the south of Sweden, I think, is called Gotland. And, and if you look all the way up to Iceland, you know, you, you see the the sort of the linguistic roots of the uh, words that the, that, the, that the Germanic tribes were using. So I think, uh, you know, in uneven ways, these norms spread. But I don't want to tell a deterministic story. No, sure, yeah. I, I it's really about depends. the struggle. It's, it's, it's about the time. The struggle, the time you know, that's gym, why in yes. Iceland, you know, it's completely... Uh, catapults. And in terms of, you know, the Christian Church's role, like look at Byzantium. Mm. So that's one place where you say you cannot say the Christian Church wasn't important. Mm. You know, both the uh, sort of top-down institutions of the Roman Empire survived there for another thousand years after the fall of the Western Roman Empire. The Church became a very important tool of control and you don't see the same transformative role of the Church. So that's not to deny that I think the church played a very important role in the history of middle Europe. But I don't think that it's a deterministic story that the ideology of the church And that time... No, because Latin, Latin America, right? Okay, so but, it, and you, you see that like in Islam too, like how in very different ways Islam was used. You know, it's originally when you think, look at Islam, Muhammad wanted to abolish the tribes because he had a vision of state centralization under his command and under you know, God's command or whatever and the tribal structure of the Arabian Peninsula and, the, and, and, and and where he lived was the biggest impediment. But then go 300 years later, Islam has been tribalized because it's been tried to penetrate these very tribal societies in the rest of Saudi Arabia and Yemen. And, and the only way it could survive was to actually reach a consensus, a, a mixture with those tribal structures. So that's the sense in which I think religions are extremely plastic.
0: Yes. No, I'm totally with you. Okay, right. So now, moving on from state and society, I want to talk about China. So Why Nations Fail said that under extractive political institutions, growth was possible, but likely to be temporary. And then the narrow corridor really doubles down on this, and... China is the exemplary, despotic... We're thinking if that
1: obstinate. <laughs> yeah,
0: I love that. Right. So, and the, the key argument is that sustained growth requires sustained innovation, which in turn requires liberty. Uh, and in the book, you say, well, yes, there's some innovation in China, but not so much. And I thought, well, what an interesting argument. Now, how can I test whether there's much innovation in China? So I was thinking looking back at your work, your paper with uh, Robinson and Verdier on uh, cuddly capitalism versus cutthroat capitalism. And in that paper, you use patent applications as a proxy Mm -hmm. for innovation. So Mm -hmm. I thought, well, let me use this, this as a proxy. Mm -hmm. So I looked at the latest data and what did I find?
1: It's a boom in China.
0: Right. But it's not just a boom. It's, you know, per capita, the patent applications are level with the USA. Mm-hmm. Now accounts for 44% of patent applications in yes. the world. And the leading global firm for patent applications, yes. Is it China? Yes, Hawaii. Right? the yeah. So for me, I'm like, well, that looks like pretty strong innovation.
1: Yeah. So actually, you know, that part of the paper... Uh, that we did with uh, Jim and Thierry was mm. ultimately cut uh, from the published paper. But if you go back, what we tried to argue there was not that number of patents is the best measure. It's really the quality of patents. And the 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 figure that I thought was very telling mm. there was not the number of patents, but how the distribution of patents looks like by citations and what you see uh, there you know this is for mm-hmm. the data from the 1990s and the 2000s mm. that Scandinavian countries are actually are, uh, are very good at generating patents but and they're very very high quality patents by the standards of the international but if you look at like the most cited 10% of patents there are a lot of Scandinavian countries but if you go as a fraction to most cited 5%, 1%, .1%, 0.1%, there you see a big decline. Mm. And that's the area where China is still struggling. So there is a huge innovation. In the
0: latest data, in the sort of 2017, 2018? Well,
1: I've not looked at the broad things, but for example... Because I was
0: playing around with a lot of data. You know, I Mm -hmm. defer to whichever data course you're looking at, but when I was looking around, it seemed... Mm -hmm. That recently, uh-huh. and, the, and, the, and the surge is so mm-hmm. recent, surges, right? surge is huge. So, so recent. And so that's why I'm a little yeah. bit skeptical about using data from the 2000s. No, no, no. no even, you if I look, you even if I look at data from 2012. So there's
1: a, there's a recent report, for example, on AI. Mm. And uh, in AI, again, China is head to head with the US yeah. in terms of number of mm, patents mm. and number of articles. But if you do quality weighted, and again, this is not my work, it's the report's work, then they fall behind. Even
0: today. Even, even t- today. Okay.
1: Even today. And 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 i think the way that i would put it is mm. that look china is a new experiment in in one way you know of course it's been 2500 years of you know amazing civilization mm. Mm. but one aspect of china is a new experiment and no but no other country has tried it which is a top down system that defines itself with innovation you know if you look at chinese sort of leadership they justify themselves with growth bringing stability and growth yes. and they completely understand that that requires innovation so essentially what china is doing is trying to do something that naturally never occurred in history which is a society that's not free a society that's subservient a top-down society but it makes innovation a priority, it pours resources, it encourages innovation. You know, in a very minor way, Russia tried to do that, Soviet Russia tried to do that, but in a very minor way, only in armaments and nuclear race. And they they had some success, but ultimately, you know, it exploded. So the question is whether China is going to be able to do it. And I would say, in a way that I did not foresee it in 2010, when we were writing Why Nations Fail, I would have said definitely not. Yeah. And today I would say, Probably not. And why am I qualifying it? Well, because it's been eight years since then. No, no, it's not just that. Because of the amount of data. So what we did not understand at the time is that the ability of China to use a huge amount of data is going to create an advantage. And we don't know how important that advantage is going to be. So I think freedom, in my opinion, is not compatible with companies and governments to have unlimited access to The data and all the activities of individuals. The privacy is a very important element for the protection of society against the state. And I think Europeans, to some degree, understand that. That's why the GDPR is something that originates in Europe. That's why I think European regulators are much more uh, uh, worried about these. Issues much more apprehensive about these issues, but what that means is that there's going to be a lot of restrictions on what European companies can do in terms of using data, and sort of that's going to spill over to Google's and to Amazon's in the U.S. The same is not true in China. So does that combine with a lot of resources, a lot of inducement, a lot of uh, you know promotions that are conditional innovation? Can that overcome the natural disadvantage that you're not actually allowing people to experiment freely? I don't know. I don't know the answer Wait, so you
0: said that the lack of property rights could make up for the lack of liberty in enabling competitiveness? You, I mean, <laughs> I that's would, a funny argument, right? I wouldn't say
1: lack of property well, rights. Well, all right, the lack, well yeah, if lack we, of, we interpret yeah, privacy yeah, as a lack yeah, of no, rights, no, no, of a, this, a, this, a sure.
0: lack of rights then, right? right? Yeah. But that's I funny. Did
1: that, I did not understand that, you know, 10 years ago, mm. but... But that's you know, really interesting now, argument. thinking and understanding more about the nature of AI, you see data is a very, very important element. Yeah. But we don't know. I'm, not, I'm just putting it as a hypothesis. I'm okay. not saying that. You know what does that depend on? It depends on the degree of economies of scale and economies of scope in data. So if it is that you need a certain amount of data to accomplish certain tasks, Every country is going to be able to do that. But that if the more data you have, every task becomes more productive, then huge data is going to be an advantage that, you know, a 1.5 billion country with, you know, free access to companies for all the data, that's going to create some advantages. Enough advantages? I don't know. So I have a project, for example, with David Yang, uh, uh, who's here this year and next year, uh, looking at whether the political power in China distorts the direction of Research and the answer that we find is very preliminary is yes. That you know, the fact that politics is not separated from science does create distortions. But the question then becomes a quantitative one is that large enough to actually mean that this innovative structure cannot continue? I I don't know the answer to that.
0: Okay, so to summarize, I'm saying here's this difficult outline. China, and you're saying, well, I don't know, it's a little bit early, you know, maybe, let's, let's right. see, but you're pessimistic. But I want to push back and say yeah. that there's not just one difficult outlier, but more difficult outliers. All of Asia. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what I can say, right? So Taiwan and South Korea, they achieve prosperity first and then they democratize. And I know you're a critic of modernization theory, yeah. but I mean, and you've, you co-authored the paper on democracy mm-hmm. and growth, which I understand, but how does Taiwan and South Korea fit within the narrow corridor framework? And let me add another. Mm-hmm. Singapore. I mean, they don't have a democracy, mm-hmm. but we might say that people in Singapore have a lot of personal and social freedom, and they seem to have escaped the cage of norms yeah. just as much as Western Europe without, yeah. without the kind of story that you tell in the narrow corridor. So, yeah, let's talk about all of East Asia, yeah. really.
1: Yeah, so I think Singapore is a very complex case, so let me leave that aside for all now. All right, OK. Yeah. So let me start with South Korea. I mean, I think South Korea is super interesting. I mean, you can tell... The South Korean story is one of, you know, modernization comes state-led development. And there is some truth to that. You know, uh, it started as a poor country with low human capital. It developed under, you know, Gen- uh, General Park and, uh, and the military. And then it became rich enough and it democratized. And I think that really, in my opinion, doesn't do justice to South Korea. First of all, I think what's really critical in South Korea is the threat of the North. It really transformed South Korea. From the get-go, they had to do huge land reforms, huge educational reforms. They had to promise a very different set of vision to their people than they would have done without the threat of communism. And then you have General Park's regime. In some ways, it's very successful, but it's also some some ways very inefficient. So the amount of inefficiency and and problems are mounting up under General Park and, and, and his followers and, and the transition to democracy doesn't look anything like a modernization hypothesis. It's a very contentious process, you know, this vision of South Korea, higher education means that students are mobilized, labor movement, despite a huge amount of repression, is highly mobilized and, and tries to both bargain for economic and social rights, and a huge repression from the military that then, you know, doesn't get the international support There are other conjectural factors that leads to the collapse of the military regime and then democratization comes with a complete economic renewal in in, in South Korea look at the South Korean growth rates 10 years before 10 years after democracy is a huge difference so I think if you take all of these things South Korea definitely doesn't fit this mold of you know it's Asian values top-down growth etc it's really you know it fundamental change in the nature of society in its expectations in its education leads to a much more mobilized society making demands and it's when those demands are met that both freedom and economic efficiency are actually improved. And I think Taiwan is a little bit similar to that. It's actually Taiwan is a very mobilized civil society because Kuomintang's rule never sort of took root in the same way that the Chinese Communist Party could secure things in the mainland. So in some Can sense Can just oh, stop that, Yeah.
0: I need to double check. It. Are there growth rates in South Korea higher after democracy? Yeah, so that's,
1: that's actually, you know, the point of this. I mean, it's not the point because it's a cross-country analysis, mm, yeah. but the paper that I wrote with Suresh Naidu yes. uh, Pascual Restrepo and Jim Robinson, uh, where we show, you know, democracy leads to mm-hmm. faster growth. So didn't make it into the paper, but in one draft, we had a sort of a case study of South Korea. And then we had this picture showing the growth in South Korea. Yeah, I mean, there are a couple of years of very high growth in, you know, in the 1970s, late 60s, 70s, Uh, but then when you look at the growth, you know, in the 1980s, it's actually pretty slow in South Korea and then the 1990s it should suck with the exception of the, the one year of the asian
0: crisis. with the exception of the very unfortunate right no, unfortunate. but
1: average growth including the asian crisis is, okay. is like okay. appreciably okay. higher you know a point a percentage point or so higher in the so, so yeah, I mean, uh, South Korean miracle today, all of that technological vibrancy, I think it's very important that this wasn't a state controlled economy under the sort of. So, you interpret South
0: government. Korea as consistent with the narrow corridor? Yeah.
1: Yeah, okay. yeah I, think, I think South Korea is an example of mobilized civil society despite repression forcing a transition into the narrow corridor and reshaping laws. I mean, if you look like, at laws and how laws are imposed on, you know, uh, on society. It's completely different in South Korea today than in the past. And it's not a smooth transition. Look, you know, they brought back uh, they brought back, you know, General Park's daughter. Not very successful here. <laughs> they kicked her out. Uh, so so it's not a very smooth process, but it's actually a very vibrant democracy and a very, very free society. In, in And you can see that compare North Korea to South Korea. Uh, you know, uh, Barbara Deming, I think, had a book like Uh, lives in Korea and if you read like the North Korean part and the South Korean part it's really you know but it's it's not just in the economy it's like in the dating patterns in social relations everything has been transformed Mm. and again that's I think I would say that it's part of the narrow corridor
0: okay all right. so now I want to shift to talk about my all time favorite topic which is social norms Mm. and Your previous book, Why Nations Fail, had this, as I see it, a sort of rational choice theory of institutions, the idea that elites will further their political and economic interests unless they're constrained by society. Um, And this new book is similar, but also emphasizes norms. And I, I was wondering, why have you now incorporated norms? And I asked, both you personally, and also there seems to be a trend within economics. Mm-hmm. You know, what, what do you think explains this? What, why, ha, why have economists increasingly embraced norms? Well, I mean, I think
1: if you want to know the truth.
0: Tell me the truth.
1: <laughs> it's not that many people thought norms were unimportant. What we wanted to do in Why Nations Fail, or what a lot of the early research wanted to do, was to shift the focus to institutions broadly construed, which were critical for understanding politics, opportunities, incentives. And we thought that one conceptualization of culture, which is as national cultures or religious cultures that are long ago determined and they shape everything, was completely anathema. It was completely unuseful unuseful in this context, and we wanted to sideline that. And, and therefore, we adopted North's definition of institutions broadly, including formal and informal. And I think, in the first pass, that was okay. But even as we were writing Why Nations Fail, uh, as well as some of the uh, research articles, we knew this was sort of restraining also. that. You know, institutions couldn't make sense without the norms that support them.
0: Without the expectations, et Without
1: people. the expectations, mm-hmm. without, you know, what mobilizes people.
0: And, but what led you to realize that? Because there seems to be oh, this sort there, of... Interle- was, uh, I'm sort of wondering about the sort of intellectual history of ideas yeah, here. Yeah, think,
1: I think... Were I think, there were
0: those curtain key papers or new research findings? Well, again, I mean, anything? I think... Uh, what rocked your priors is what I'm wondering.
1: Well, it's more like... It's crystallizing rather than... Oh, a eureka moment. Okay. So, if you look at our discussion of uh, uh, FDR versus Perron's uh, packing of the court, if we were to retell that story, which, you know, we try not to retell the same stories in the two books, <laughs> but if we came and retold that story mm. in the cons- uh, the conceptual framework of the narrow corridor, it will be all about norms. So, the norms of society were such that in in Argentina, people would accept the head of the state to impose his will on Supreme Court and not, so that's what we... And not fight back, not, and not
0: have that struggle, because not, if well, you have that, that struggle... That
1: wasn't the case under FDR, that, that's why Democrats fought against him, that's why Brandeis, you know, his, his ally in the Supreme Court fought against him. Uh, No, I
0: think that's absolutely key because if we think that what's key is the struggle, then what shapes people's proclivity to mobilize is whether they expect more, whether they have collective efficacy, etc. Yeah, Yeah, and
1: and, you know, you know, as as early as you know, two thousand nine, two thousand ten, I was working on these papers with Matt Jackson on social norms, their evolution, and so on. So it's not that, but we thought in why nations fail, if we add more and more sort of detailed the big picture is going to get lost so we said okay let's leave that right aside. okay so
0: this is clarifying for me you're always on but, board with the norm right, agenda right, but, but now the, you're but, emphasizing but the more than
1: we started thinking about it the more i work with matt and other people on the norms issues the more crystallized it became and, and i would say i'm still a novice as many of us are i think norms are more complex than institutions in many ways yes. we don't understand them that's why the cage of norms i think is so perplexing and uh and and mystifying at some level. What makes people change their norms and what changes norms in a way that doesn't create a backlash. I think those are issues that we still have to grapple with.
0: It's my obsession. I love it. Okay. So now as (laughs) obsessions go, that's probably better than most um, Right. Okay, now I have another question. So let's suppose that I'm entirely persuaded by Why Nations Fail and the Narrow Corridor, as well as you... you're not? No. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, let's let's just suppose that. Mm -hmm. And I'm also persuaded by your work on the French Revolution and Napoleon. Mm -hmm. So I accept that it can be an exogenous shock, Mm -hmm. a critical juncture to disrupt strongly path-dependent, extractive political institutions. Now let's suppose that I have a time-travelling machine and I go back to the early 2000s, I think I would support the Iraq war because isn't the Marshall Plan for the Middle East entirely consistent with your arguments about the French Revolution, you know, pushing into Germany in a condition where you already have a sort of cohesive society with the the legacy? I was thinking that, you know, why were you surprised by the failure of Iraq?
1: Well, first of all, I never supported the Iraq war. Okay. I'll say okay, the record. okay. I was but it always seems... extremely oh, But why? With... But
0: because it seems so consistent with your arguments.
1: So, first of all, you know, I remember very well when we started working on the French Revolution mm, paper. Mm. And and you know, many papers when we start, I have strong priors, you know. They sometimes turn out to be wrong, but I have some strong cry, mm. and I'll say, oh, you know, I bet we're going to find something like that. <laughs> and in this one, I didn't. I remember I had these two quotes, one from Thomas Paine, one from Edmund Burke. I said, I don't know which one's right. And, and the reason why I don't know, because I think Edmund Burke had a point, which is that when you try to tear down something that is an ensemble of norms, expectations, institutions, it's going to create a backlash. It's going to create a lot of unexpected uh, reactions. And it's only luck, resources, persistence that can make sure that it doesn't sort of lead to complete chaos. And oftentimes it's very costly. So it turned out that we, our evidence suggests the French Revolution worked in the long run, mm-hmm. you know, 50 years, 100 years thereafter. But going back, if I went back with a time machine to 1800, not to 2000, would I say that was a good idea? I don't know, because it also created a huge amount of human suffering. Yes, of I course. mean, the French armies were not really nice and cuddly, no, 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 and, no. And, and, and there were a lot of hardship and murder and mayhem. But the French and the institutions that put in place, they had staying power. In the same way that, you know, when the Americans, you know, uh, invaded... Germany Mm. in the post war, they had resources, they had staying power, they had an ideology of really we're going to transform Germany, we're going to get rid of its Nazi roots. So that's what I think was very important and in some circumstances that works under some circumstances it doesn't work. I think in the case of Iraq, neither the commitment was there nor the understanding was there. It was bound to be, you know, the reason why I was very against it was because It was bound to be perceived in the whole of Middle East, not just in Iraq, as the American imperialists coming, and they would probably make a mess of it, because I knew what the American military has done in most places, and more messes than than successes. So I think that's why I... But I also have
0: a theory that you could have predicted... Maybe you could argue that Mm -hmm. you'd predict failure in Iraq, because... Unlike Germany, Iraq was perhaps still trapped in the cage of norms with you know, society driven yes, by various traditions in a I way think, that wasn't. Yes. So then we come back to our initial endowment of social the capital. The
1: situation was absolutely mm. 100%. Mm. I should have added that and I yeah. didn't. Iraq was still a tribal society. Yeah. It did not have political participation at the bottom-up level. You know, if you look at uh, so
0: whether that exogenous shock works, whether that critical juncture works, yes. depends on the prior and down. Absolutely, of absolutely.
1: And then you know that's a that's a point that we try to make in the narrow corridor. Mm. You know, like the Prussian state, which is extremely top-down and repressive. You know, it's built by sidelining but not destroying the tradition of parliaments of the Holy Roman Empire, self-governing cities, political participation, and you know, when the French go to the Netherlands, to Belgium, and to parts of Germany, they really are mobilizing some of these forces. In Italy, in Sicily, that doesn't work as well, uh, you know, the conditions are different and their, their tenure is much more tenuous there. So again, it's more like the Iraq case that much less of a uh, organic presence, much less of the resources that they can use and, and, and much less of a commitment to really change the uh, you know, social and economic institutions of the place.
0: Okay, I'm with you. Right. So now, again, continuing my obsession with norms. So the overarching argument is that for liberty to emerge and flourish, we need a strong state and a strong society. And through cooperation and conflict, we escape war and we overcome the cage of norms and shackle the Leviathan. But I wonder, even if the Levathan is shackled, really, for me, you can still be trapped in the cage Absolutely. of norms. Oh, yeah. So um, you know, war, whether it's the... relation to class, whether relation to race, gender, etc.
1: So that's exactly what we wanted to say as well, and perhaps we did not say it mm-hmm. well enough. This is what we mean by liberty is a process. You travel in the corridor. Look at Switzerland. In many ways, it's an exemplary shackled leviathan, in uh, the state is very responsive, Poli- political participation is very deep-rooted, it's in the capillary of society, but, you know, well into the 20th century, women are completely second class, they don't have political voice, they're discriminated against in every way, so it only takes time for many of these cages to be broken, and in some sense, I cannot even imagine it otherwise, because, you know, Whenever you have two draconian ways of trying to go against existing traditions, it backfires. So, this is the really delicate nature of the corridor. It provides us the tools for changing the cage of norms, changing the nature of political participation, changing the nature of the true opportunities available to people. But on the other hand, it also makes us much more subject to what society wants. And if society says, especially the powerful people of the society say, you know, we're going to discriminate against women, that's going to be very difficult to change and it can only be done gradually.
0: So then, picking up on the, your point about the powerful people, this is where, I mean, the, the, in the book, The Narrow Corridor, it's very much this two, these two oppositional forces, though sometimes in cooperation, state and society, mm-hmm. as if these are the two axes. I wonder, is the struggle and the relative balance between state and society really the key way to understand threats to liberty today? Because I wonder, for me, is it more about specific groups gaining positions of power and influence within both state and society, within business, within media, within judiciary politics, whether we're talking about white nationalists in the USA, whether we're talking about business associations in Bangladesh, whether we're talking about Hindu nationalists in India. You know, for me... If I look at threats to my liberty as a woman, it can come from yeah. the police turning a blind eye Absolutely. to my complaints, it can turn you know, sexist in, in academia, et So I don't 100%. see that, I don't know if it's useful. I wouldn't say
1: it's definitely not sufficient. I, mm. I, I would say definitely it's not sufficient and it's mm. many multifaceted. But I would claim that this is an important axis. So take a, a pretty specific example. Uh, sexual abuse and uh, discrimination against women in Hollywood. Yes. Is that the state? No. 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 No means. I mean, you know, it would have to be a really weird definition of the state. But to put Harvey, Harvey Weinstein in there. No,
0: I mean you can, you can you can think about the police turning a blind but eye or exactly, not taking exactly. the seriously. But, but the fact
1: that there was a belief that the whole
0: power structure,
1: which of course is organically related to state structure, would be deaf to complaints made co- contributed to its persistence. And then, ultimately, the way that it changed was very much like a bottom-up societal reaction that then triggered the judicial branch of the federal government or the state governments to actually, the city governments, to actually take action. So that's, I think, is... You know, it doesn't deny that, in this instance, the main uh, conflict was between powerful, unscrupulous men in production or their directorial position and women, but it does still place it within the broader context of judicial institutions and the power structure of society.
0: I mean, I totally agree. I think Me Too is a really nice example of the multiple equilibrium positive feedback loops, because for a long time, you might have women privately frustrated uh, with sexual harassment, but... Because of their expectations, exactly. they think, oh, people will just say, what was she wearing? What time was she going out? But then we have one person taking a case yes. and being taken seriously by others. Then we see other people supporting her. Yes. So that encourages yes. more people to come forward. And it's actually because economic
1: Yes, Really, as much as I think the expectation that people wouldn't believe you and the norms will go against you, it's also the fact that economic power yes. is very unequally distributed in Hollywood. And, and Powerful and men decided. who gets films, you yes. So it would be really very much in danger. So that's why, you know, towards the end of the book, we really try to push hard for this expansion of the definition of liberty to include economic opportunities. So unless in this modern life you have, you know, some sort of economic opportunity equality, it's going to be very difficult to talk about the real world. I'm, I'm with you,
0: but then I I... I so again... I'm still I'm still confused perhaps because in The Narrow Corridor it says it's about the struggle between state on the one hand and society on the one hand and I can't make sense of that when I think of sexism, cross-casting or oh, for example take your chapter on Ferguson yeah. Yeah. you know again that to me seems like it's about racism being endemic within a society, both within the police and within white nationalists. Again, so again, 100%. so I don't, so I don't know why we're talking about states versus no, society. No, I think
1: again, states and society is an important axis; is not the only one. You could have made okay. exactly the same point about our India chapter. I mean, our India chapter—that's the really the main chapter about the cage of norms, yes. so to speak—is really saying, look, India has. Perhaps the best constitution any developing country has Mm. and it's written perhaps the most inspiring figure of Ambedkar but it doesn't mean anything. The discrimination against low caste people, caste divisions have persisted 70 years since that constitution Mm. and it's not going to be solved by just by that constitution but that constitution as well as who controls state power will be an important element of that. You know how Political power, the judicial branch—how all of these things interact with the cage of norms is critical. And if we are going to have these, uh, you know, norm-based restrictions and inequities relax, you really need the cooperation of state and society. Look at, you know, again—I mean, you, you're mm-hmm. the expert on this. I'm not going yeah, to, I would claim that. but you know, from the situation of women. Mm-hmm. I don't think you could have had anything approaching the progress that women made if they didn't have the vote. But the vote wasn't enough, you know, 60 years after the vote there was systematic uh, economic discrimination against women and it took another set of mobilizations that then start changing the laws and how those laws are implemented. Because you know, if women mobilized and went on the street and they said we want to end sexual discrimination, we want to end economic discrimination, but the laws really remained completely out of that picture, it wouldn't have worked. That mobilization needs to bring the laws into the picture, their implementation, so that that actually acts as one of the levers that protects women against that discrimination.
0: I'm with you. I'm with you. I will go out and mobilize right women.
1: <laughs> In limited
0: <laughs> Daron, thank you so much. This was a real truth. My my pleasure, Alice. Thanks for having me on the program.